This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. This morning, uh, we're going to be in the first uh, chapter of the Gospel of John, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. It's a text that will be fairly familiar to many of you. So I want to ask Tori if she'll come out, and she's going to read verses 1 through 18, the passage uh, that we'll be hearing from God through this morning. She's going to read it through uh, the message, uh, the paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. So let's, uh, let's fix our attention uh, on God. The Word was first, the Word present to God, God present to the Word. The Word was God in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without him. What came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness. The darkness couldn't put it out. There once was a man, his name John, sent by God to point out the way to the life light. He came to show everyone where to look, who to believe in. John was not himself the light. He was there to show the way to the light. The life light was the real thing. Every person entering life he brings into light. He was in the world. The world was there through him, and yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed, and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God's selves. These are the God-begotten, not blood-begotten, not flesh-begotten, not sex-begotten. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. John pointed him out and called, this is the one, the one I told you was coming after me, but in fact was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me, has always had the first word. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus, the Messiah. No one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse. This one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him. Thank you, Tori. Part of my, my hope and my desire, my prayer for uh, me, for my family, for you, for all of us during this season, as we go to parties and get-togethers, we give gifts and we receive gifts, um, we enjoy this season of the year. Some of us um, dread this season of the year. For many people, it, it can be a discouraging and even a dark time of the year. But my desire is that we not get lost in all of the activity, as fun as it is, as good as it is, as renewing for for many of us as it is, um, that we not get lost in it and miss the greater reality to which it all points. That is extremely easy 
for us as Christ followers to do and is par for the course for uh, the rest of our society and for many even who claim the name of Jesus but find little interest for him in their own hearts um, except maybe slight flutterings around this time of year and perhaps Easter. Um, even when we drive by homes uh, that have incredible displays of Christmas lights, we ought to ask ourselves, why is it that we put out lights during this time of year? It's to reflect symbolically and physically the light of the world that we find in Jesus Christ. Why is it that we give gifts? We give gifts during this time of year because we have received Jesus, the greatest gift that anyone could ever give. Um, so uh, with that said, I, I want us to direct our attention to the passage that Tori uh, just read, to uh, the prologue that, that Beth and David read before and beyond. And I want us to consider together, in, in the midst of all of the confusion that exists around this time of year, who this Jesus is that we celebrate, who this Jesus is that leads um, most of the inhabited world to be in a, in a posture and a mindset of celebration this time of year. Let's look at, again, John's gospel as he begins. And John uh, lets us know in his gospel that he is unashamedly writing it to be evangelistic. He's writing it to um, persuade people through the power of the Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God to the end that they be reconciled to him in relationship, forgiven of their sins, and participants now in God's purpose and mission and his coming uh, fulfillment of the new creation. And yet he starts in this kind of awkward, weird way. I mean, any of us that read John 1, 1 through 5, and it doesn't feel a bit bumpy or a bit awkward. I don't know if we've actually thought about it or listened to it, but let me pull out a, a, few, um, a few observations from the text this morning about who this Jesus is that we celebrate this time of year. Obviously, um, to answer the question, who is Jesus, is so big. It's so broad, we could not do it fully this morning, even though we're going to, to work uh, entirely through this passage, not exhaustively, we don't have that kind of time, but entirely. But I would say right from the beginning, we see that Jesus is the eternal agent and sustainer of all that exists. He comes to us as the eternal agent and sustainer of all that exists. Look again at verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, and then we get, a, we get a little clue when John changes his language a bit here and uses a pronoun, he was with God in the beginning. So we, we immediately see that this word that John is talking about is somehow a person and that this person was with God and that this person was God. And in the beginning is this language to, to signify the time before anything else was. The time before anything that you and I can see or touch or experience existed. Verse 3, through him, through him, through this one who is the word, all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. All right, I want to deal carefully uh, for just a few minutes with this idea of this word, word, capital uh, W, word, if you will. John's audience that he's writing to it consists both of Greeks and of Jews, Gentiles and Jews or Hebrews. And this word that we find here related to God in verses 1 and 2, and then creation itself in verses 3 through 5, and then the proclamation of this word by John the Baptist in verses 6 and beyond would cause us to question, if John, like if you're going up to share Jesus with someone, imagine you have someone who's come to you and said, I don't know what's happening in me, but I sense I'm made for more, and I know you're a person of faith. Would you share with me what you believe? And you started out and said, absolutely, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. They would stare at you with a blank but polite gaze, right? So it's interesting that John starts here. Why does he begin his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, instead of something like, in the beginning was the only begotten Son, he doesn't start that way. He doesn't start with Jesus as son. He starts with the word. Partly it's because it's impossible to get to know someone, to get to know a person unless they are willing to speak to you. Unless they're willing to, to open up and communicate with you. Now, you could observe some things about them. If you're on a plane and you're sitting next to someone, you could look at them and make some observations, but you don't really know anything about them unless they choose to speak to you. And when we open our mouths and begin to speak, we make known that which was previously hidden. When we communicate, communication is a godlike act. When we communicate, we make known that which was previously hidden. And it is in this distinct sense that God is using this word in the, the prologue, the beginning of his gospel. Don't miss this. Man as the creature, man as the creature cannot expect to know God as the creator unless God chooses to speak. We as creatures cannot expect to know God as the creator unless God chooses to speak, unless God takes the initiative. And it is in God's speaking that we come to know him. J.B. Phillips, in his great paraphrase of the New Testament, puts verses one through five like this. At the beginning, God expressed himself. That personal expression, that word, was with God and was God, and he existed with God from the beginning. All creation took place through him, and none took place without him. In him appeared life, and this life was the light of mankind. The light still shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it out. 
And this is what is so distinct about Christianity. Christianity is God taking the initiative to move down toward his creation. Every other human attempt at religion is a human attempt to start with us and move somehow toward God. But what did this mean? When, when John wrote this, what did this mean to his original hearers? Greeks and Jews heard it a little bit differently. Um, they were both familiar with this word behind word that many of you are familiar with, logos. Logos, it was a, a common use, a common expression. And to the Greeks, uh, they would have had in their mind the rational principle in the universe. They saw uh, in Greek philosophy and Greek thinking that behind what made the universe happen in the orderliness that it happened was a rational principle, a force, not a person. Jews would have heard this word logos as meaning God's word, God's verbally expressed word as you find in Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. John's Jewish audience couldn't imagine him, uh, couldn't imagine God expressing himself any other way except through his word. So when John starts out an evangelistic letter, within the beginning was the word, so on and so forth, the Greeks are like, absolutely, we agree. Jews are like, couldn't be any other way. And then John kind of turns it on its head. The Word of God is the means by which God reveals what He is thinking so that men and women can understand and know Him, so that you can understand and know Him. That's part of what makes regular, faithful, prayerful Bible reading so significant. God has made Himself known through His written Word, and through his living word, Jesus Christ. And if you're a Bible student, you'll notice that John 1.1 sounds uh, um, incredibly like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the universe. Genesis 1 deals with God's original creation. John 1 is dealing with God's new creation. God's new creation, that which God is doing through Jesus Christ. And what John is saying here is that the, the very agent by which God is reconciling men and women to himself now, through whom the new creation has been launched and will be fulfilled, is in fact the very one who was the active agent at the creation of all things. There was never a time when there was no word, no living person, second person of the Trinity. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coexistent and eternal with God before he takes on flesh and becomes man in Jesus. He existed before creation. And every time you find a cult or an offshoot or heresy of Christianity, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Arianism early in the church, this is the point at which they stumble. This is the point at which many Americans theologically stumble. Uh, if you've seen a report that just came out from Ligonier Ministries in uh, relationship with Lifeway, 
uh, research now where they, uh, they survey sort of the state of theology today. Again, it reaffirms how many people believe Jesus was simply the first created being. Not that he was and is eternal and preexistent with God. If you'll remember Thomas, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his ascension. And Thomas says, hey, show us the way to the Father. We want to go where you're going, Jesus. And Jesus says, how can you ask me that? The Father and I are, are one. He says in John 14, 9, those who've seen me have seen the Father. Do you understand how startling that is? You want to know what God is like? Again, you go to Jesus. How does God deal with people? Look at Jesus. What does God think about different uh, issues or realities? Look at Jesus. When you see Jesus by the help of the Holy Spirit, you see God. Why do we celebrate this season? Because in it, we come to see and know God through the birth of a little baby boy who would grow to be an obedient man, living righteously before his heavenly father, all the way to his atoning execution, murder, sacrifice on the cross so that his blood might be the atoning for your sin and mine. Jesus comes to us and comes to us again in kind of a sweet and special way as we remember this time of year as the eternal agent and sustainer of everything that exists. The air that you breathe today, that your lungs filter, that keeps your system operating is a good and perfect gift from Jesus. The fact that your heart continues to beat right now as you listen is because Jesus is the agent and sustainer of your very life. The reason we're certain, we're certain that fall will come after summer and winter will come after fall and spring again will bud after winter and lead us into summer is because Jesus, through the word of his power, declares it to be so. He comes to us as the eternal agent and sustainer of all creation. He comes to us also as the invitation of God that cannot be avoided. There are a lot of invitations you can avoid. But the invitation of God to repentance and reconciliation through Jesus Christ cannot be avoided. It cannot be avoided. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Everything that you understand about John the Baptist and his ministry and the way that he preached and the way that he operated has to be rooted in the fact that he's described as a man sent from God. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. What light? Jesus, the Son, the eternal Word. So that through him, all might believe. 
He himself was not the light, that is John the Baptist. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light gives light to everyone. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, I want to say a word about this. Throughout John, you see a lot of language from Genesis. This light and darkness is from Genesis. And I just want to point out and maybe remind some of you that, that light and darkness are not simply opposites. That darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. There's, there's no activity in darkness. There's no active agency to darkness. Darkness simply prevails where the light isn't. Remember at the beginning of creation, darkness hovered over what God had created until God said what? Let there be light because light necessarily drives out the darkness. And I can tell you this morning, if you're struggling with darkness in areas of your life, go to Jesus who is the light. He drives out the darkness. Don't focus on driving out the darkness. Don't pray for less darkness. Simply go to the light. The darkness is simply absence of light. When there is no light, you have darkness. But the light drives it out. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made I can't read this morning. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a a husband's will, but born of God but born of God. This is what John is saying here is that all of humanity, all of humanity is uh, dealing with this invitation of God made known in Jesus Christ in at least one of three ways. The first of which we see in verse 10 is by simply failing to recognize, failing to recognize him for who he is. There is an immense amount of this in our culture today. So much fuzziness and lack of clarity around Jesus. We happen to be in a time and place in human history in our culture where we we love the Jesus that, that doesn't judge, right? We love the Jesus that overlooks offenses, but we we set aside the Jesus or ignore the Jesus that gives us imperative teaching that tells us how we're to think, what we're to believe, how we're to live around other issues in our lives. Because there's confusion. There's a failure to recognize him for who he is, the creator and sustainer of all of human life, the Lord of all creation, the great divine invitation of God to see our own sin for what it is, to repent and be reconciled. Some fail to recognize. Verse 11 tells us that some simply choose to reject. He came to them, or that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There's an act of choice. I reject. We talked a lot about this in the weeks past. We love darkness, not the light. We love being our own God. We do not want to be submissive. We do not want to be under the authority of anyone else. 
Some fail to recognize, some choose to reject. But by the mercy of God, by the determination of God, some decide to receive. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. We talked about what a supernatural, miraculous act of God it is when any of us choose to believe. To those who do and did, he gave the right to become children of God. And then John clarifies this a little bit so that we don't get confused. But I, I, wanna, I wanna pause at that word gave, at the tremendous nature of this gift that God provides. There's an old hymn by a man named James M. Gray uh, entitled, Only a Sinner. These lines jumped out at me this week. Not have I gotten N-A-U-G-H-T, not have I gotten but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. It's this great acknowledgement of the gift. Last week we were talking about giving and generosity um, and how it's such a public act throughout Scripture and a couple of you uh, had questions about how we reconcile that with what we see in Matthew uh, chapter 6, just the first few verses. I'll read this to you uh, briefly. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees in secret what is done in secret will reward you. Um, the, the key to understanding that when it comes to giving, we find literally in verse 1 of chapter 6, which goes throughout the chapter. It deals not only with giving to the poor, it deals with praying, it deals with fasting, and it is about the heart of our religious devotion, not our act. It's about our motivation behind what we do, not the observation of those who are seeing what we do. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. To be seen by them is the imperative command there. We can't practice righteousness without it being seen by others. Righteousness by its very nature deals with how we interact with other human beings before God. We're not to do that in a way that puffs up our own arrogance and our own pride. Even when it comes to giving and to giving to the needy, when Jesus uses this great hyperbolic phrase, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Obviously, he's pushing exaggeration to a point beyond uh, what is understandable or real to make a point. And even in giving to the needy, at least the needy you give to are going to know. Uh, more often than not in Jesus' day, you simply couldn't give to the needy without others seeing because the needy were out in public asking. Jesus is dealing with the heart behind 
our giving, the heart behind our prayer in verses 5 and following, the heart behind our fasting in verses 16 and following. And it makes sense because when Jesus comes as God's ultimate gift, he breaks into the world. Not in a private way, but in a public way. Flowing from the heart of a Trinitarian God who is generous and good. And he comes as the invitation of God that cannot be avoided. How are you doing with this this morning? Where are you with this invitation of God to own your own sin, to acknowledge it, to repent of it, to turn from it, and to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? And if you've not yet done that, you have no greater need this morning and this Christmas season than to come to know God as your God through Jesus Look at verse 13, though, because John doesn't want us to get confused here. He says, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And then he clarifies this. Children born, born, this is the language of regeneration, that something has happened in our hearts that we had no control of. Born not of natural descent. In other words, being children of Abraham is not enough. Nor of human decision which seems bizarre, doesn't it? Because John just used the word decided to those who did receive him, who believed in him. He gave the right to become children of God. Then he says, but not of human decision. What John is saying here is that God is the primary actor in our salvation. That God is the first one to act and the one who acts decisively. Nor of human decision or a husband's will. He's saying this is not just, this is not a physical birth that can be controlled by human beings, but born of God. Jesus comes as God's great invitation. Finally, Jesus comes to us, and we remember this this time of year as the embodiment of God's favor towards sinners. You don't have to raise your hands on this, but how many of you in here this morning are deeply aware of your own sinfulness? your own need for Jesus, your own capacity for your heart to pursue other things and other ones before God. Jesus comes as the embodiment of God's favor toward you, all sinners. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. When John uses that we, he's talking about the apostles there. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Now, John is moving his hearers past this idea of word that might be confused as a force or rationale or simply something spoken, but to a person and to a person that is the Father's Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. If there's anything you and I need right now, if there's anything our neighbors need, if there's anything your coworkers and your classmates and your friends and your family needs and our sick and dying nation needs, it is the fullness of grace and truth together 
in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the only hope we have. It is the only hope we have. Verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Your translation may say grace upon grace. The, the wording here is interesting and unique and I don't have time uh, to go deeply into it and you wouldn't care anyway. Uh, but the, the word that is usually translated upon throughout the text is, is not used here. It's a different word that doesn't mean to stack something on top of another or simply replace something with another, but to add something to another. And the key to verse 16 to what John is saying in his argument here is verse 17. Anytime you see a little connector word like for, you understand that. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. The NIV here is working this out for us well. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is understanding the law as a form of God's grace in the past. That it was a gracious act of God to give his law to his people that began to explain to them who he was, who they were, and how they were to live as human beings in community with one another and with God. I wish you and I could understand the commands and the teaching of God as God's grace toward us. As God's favor and goodness given toward us. Think about it on the most basic of human levels. When you give a child an instruction for that child's benefit and they may rail against it. They do that because they don't understand that what you're telling them, what you're commanding them to do is for their good. I mean, how, how, let's do a show of hands on this one just for fun, just so I make sure you're awake. How many of you who are parents this morning ever had to say to your child who did not, what you wanted, did, did not want to do what you wanted them to do, look, you've got to do this. You have to trust me here. I know more than you. How many of you ever said some version of that? Yes! That's all Shannon and I ever do right now. It's like, I know we seem like morons to you, but we know more than you, and we love you, and what we're telling you is for your good. Is it such a great leap? Is it such a great leap that when it comes to forgiveness, and when it comes to sexuality, and when it comes to our money, and when it comes to our words, and when it comes to all of this, is it such a leap for us to believe that God might know more than we do and might be giving us instruction that is for our good? And maybe we could just say, God, I don't understand this. I don't feel this. Because our society is completely based on what we feel right now. It makes me want to vomit. Feeling has little correlation usually with truth. Whether or not we feel it, whether or not we understand it, say, God, I, I do see what you say and I'm going to trust you and to the best of my ability, empowered by your spirit and walking in your grace, seek to do it. Seek to live obediently, trusting you. 
Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I'll be honest with you, I like grace upon grace better because it's more ringy to the ears. But the translators of the NIV, at least here, are getting at what John is saying. That the law was given as an act of grace to his people. And then on top of that, we have the fullness of grace and truth, grace and truth given to us in Jesus Christ. Then he reminds us in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. We need grace and truth. And in that order, we need grace to be able to even hear and accept truth. That's why when somebody who doesn't like you a whole lot anyway comes to you to explain to you why um, you're not all the things that you should be, you don't really care. But when someone who loves you and has shown you grace comes to talk to you about something, we have a greater tendency to hear it and accept it. We need the grace of God to hear and accept the truth of God about who we are. And we need the truth of God to reveal our need for grace. Do you understand that? Without God's truth, we would just be running around thinking how awesome we are because we're better than other losers we can think of. And without God's grace, we couldn't stand up under the weight of his truth. And God tells us through John that here comes Jesus, the fullness of his grace and truth for us. There's a a modern song by Matthew West called Grace Wins. Grace Wins. And I I won't try to hum it or sing it. I wouldn't subject you to that. But there's a section in there where West says this. For the prodigal son, grace wins. For the woman at the well, grace wins. For the blind men and the beggar, Grace wins. For always and forever, grace wins. For the worst part of you and me, grace wins. For the thief on the cross, grace wins. For a world that is lost, grace wins. West is saying the light has come into the world and the darkness cannot put it out. I would add this morning for the husband And Father, who knows he's not been what his family needs, grace wins. For the mom who's exhausted and has nothing left to give, grace wins. For the lonely and unseen this morning, grace wins. For those walking in fear and uncertainty, grace wins. For the one who can't forget the darkness of your own past, grace wins. For the grieving and brokenhearted this morning, grace wins. For the anxious and depressed, grace wins. Let me ask you to stand right now as we prepare to respond to God's word, to reflect on God's word. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. But I want you to know wherever it is, 
If you'll simply live responsively to God, grace wins. The light has come into the darkness. His light has come into your darkness. And the darkness, your darkness, can't put it out. That's why we celebrate this time of year. That's why we put lights on our trees and on our houses. It's to demonstrate to those driving by, to those seeing, that a light has come into the world and darkness can never put it out. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.